Well, in the aftermath of Hurricane Harvey a couple of years ago, uh, family lives in Cyprus, and the church I was serving in is on the north or on the west side of town at uh, Beltway 8 and I-10, just close to the Attics Reservoir. And so, by the time I could get to a place where uh, we could get down to the church, it had been a few days after the rains had stopped and the the, the floodwaters had subsided a little bit. And so, we got I took my ten-year-old at the time to the church. And it was just kind of chaos as we came across I-10 and made our way to uh, the church. And we were kind of setting up headquarters to help people. And so uh, we, were, we had teams that were going out to rescue people. And we were setting up kind of a food pantry and a hub for people to come and get supplies. We were creating teams to muck out homes that were 30-plus families in our church that needed help. And um, so we're at the church. And there were about 15 of us there setting up a room to help people and supplies to help people. And one of the guys in the room got a text and he said, hey, um, I just got this text and apparently there was a levee that broke at Attics and there was this long pause and then I just yelled. I said, everybody out. And this lady was going to the nursery. I got to go get something. I'm like, no, get in your car and travel east. And I went to my office and my son's in front. He's, he's laughing right now because I went to the office and I just yelled at him and said, get in the truck. And we got in the truck and we screeched out of there and we almost ran over like three different people that didn't know about this text that I got. And I was going and we got to the frontage road and I realized I had to turn west to loop back around to get up on the ramp at Beltway 8 and and I-10. And so I'm imagining this wall of water coming. And so I'm just moving and another traffic seems to know what's going on. And my son is just holding on to the truck and I loop around and I get up to the top of the interchange there above all of Houston that you can see and you can see attics and there's no water. There's not the wall of water coming. And about that time, I got a phone call from the guy who had said that and said, hey, false alarm. Nothing's, the levee hasn't broken. It was a small levee on Cy Creek. And I was just sitting up on top because I was sure that the levee had busted. And we began to drive home and my son says, I was so scared, Dad. I've never seen you yell like that or drive like that. You know what I didn't get the next week from our people who I yelled at? I I didn't get the text or the email sent to all the elders that said, hey, you were really rude to me. You were really harsh. The way you talked to me was really ugly. I didn't get that the following week. I didn't get that because there was a perceived inherent danger that warranted a strong response. The text today that we're in in the book of Titus, turn there, Titus chapter 1, and we'll be in verses 10 through 16. You see a strong response from Paul to Titus, and there was a real danger. It wasn't an inherent danger. It wasn't a perceived danger. It was a real danger in the churches in Crete that was going on. And so you're going to see a really strong response from Paul to Titus. And so go there with me, uh, Titus chapter 1. And I'll just pick it up uh, in verse 9 there. Titus chapter 1, I think it's page 998. If you've got a Bible close to you on a seat, grab it there. It's a very strong response to a real and present danger. And I want you to feel this uh, when we read this. And so verse 9, chapter 1, Titus, page 998. Word of God says this. And he's speaking about elders, um, and, and one of the things that an elder has to be, a leader in the church, he has to be an example, but he also has to 
Hold firm, verse 9, to the trustworthy word as taught so that you may be able to give instruction and sound doctrine and also rebuke, they're strong, those who contradict it. Look at verse 10. For there are many who are insubordinate, empty talkers, deceivers, especially those of the circumcision party. Verse 11, they, may be, they must be silenced or literally muzzled since they are upsetting whole families by teaching for shameful gain what they ought not teach. One of the Cretans, a prophet of his own, said, Cretans are always liars, evil beasts, lazy gluttons. This testimony is true. Therefore rebuke, there's the word again, them sharply that they may be sound in the faith, not devoting themselves to Jewish myths and the commands of people who turn away from the truth. To the pure, all things are pure, but to the defiled and unbelieving, nothing is pure. But both their minds and their consciences are defiled. They profess to know God, but they deny Him by their works. They are detestable, disobedient, unfit for any good work. Why so serious, Paul? Why so serious? Why so direct? Some would say, why so intolerant? Here's your point. I think you see in this text. Here's the point for today. If you want to write it down, write it down. Divergent doctrine distorts the gospel and damages people. Divergent doctrine distorts the gospel and damages people. Jesus said this when He said, hey, there will be false prophets who come. They are like wolves. You don't make a wolf your pet. Paul says it when you get to 2 Peter. Peter makes Paul seem like lightweight when you get to 2 Peter. And Peter's talking about false teachers who come into the church. That's the context. Who come into the church to teach the church false teaching. That's what you see. So all through the Bible you see this. You see this theme of false teachers and how we should respond. How do we know who they are? See, I think sometimes when I read a text like this, or there's many in the New Testament, I just say, you know, Paul, in my mind, I may not say it out loud, but I, I just have this sentiment like, okay, that was then and this is now and we don't have that. Or it doesn't look like that. Um, but the truth is, is the New Testament says, says that false teaching will, will actually go from bad to worse. And then the Apostle Paul says things like in 2 Timothy chapter 4, it's not just the stuff that you see, like the guy on the bike who's riding and he has a white shirt and he has black pants on the bike that has Elder Brigham and Elder Young on the side. It's not just that. It's more deceptive even than that. The New Testament says that our hearts are given to false teaching because it's novel, it's new, it's something different. And the Bible says in 2 Timothy chapter 4, in chapter 4, Paul tells Timothy, young pastor elder, he says, hey, preach the word. We like that part of the passage. I love that part of the passage. Preach the word. The reason why we preach the word in the next few verses, you know what the next few verses say? It says, hey, you know what people will do? People will gather for themselves. Teachers who want to tickle your ears, tickle their ears, and they will accumulate teachers who don't want to listen to sound doctrine, that don't want to listen to the Scriptures. They want to listen to something that tells them they're great. And they tickle their ears. And they turn aside from truth to myths. But you, Timothy, be sound in faith. 
Do you think there's any teaching today that you and I are around that tickle ears? I think there is. We live in Houston, Texas. There's a lot of tickling of ears going on. And I say that not to slam people, but I say that, and I want you to know, as your new pastor, it is not my heart to come in here and preach hellfire damnation every week at you. I don't, I don't want to preach at you. I want to be an encouragement to you in sound doctrine. I want to encourage you toward Christ, to grow in godliness. And so the opposite is often true, where, where people just slam any and every doctrine. There's ditches that we live in today. There's the ditch of, hey, church is just this place of peace, and please give me a message that is completely palatable, that it doesn't challenge me. And, and we all live in peace and harmony. And the flip side is, we're looking for false doctrine behind every little rock. And if you don't agree with my take on Calvinism or Arminianism or whatever ism it is or hymns or worship music, then you're a false teacher. So we live in these di weird ditches. And I think this text is great because it gives us a balance. This text is going to give us three ways to know a counterfeit. Three ways that show us what the counterfeit looks like, the characteristics of a counterfeit. And then it's going to tell us as a church and as a people what to do with it. How do we respond when we, if we do find that? What, what are the two responses that we should have? This text is great. It's a balance. Paul is balanced here. And so the first thing I think you see in a way to spot the counterfeit teacher, which is not always obvious, is first their message is just off. Their message is just off. Look at back at the text. Verse 10, um, we find out a little bit about the message as well as who they are. Um, the end of verse 10, it says, especially those from the circumcision party. And then verse 14, it says, not devoting themselves to Jewish myths and the commands of people. And so, and then verse 11, some things about the teaching. There are things that should not be taught, verse 11 says. Verse four, back to verse 14, it says, and they're turning people away from the truth. So who are these people? Um, and that day, these people would have been known as the Judaizers. You ever heard that term? You can go look it up. You can Google it. The Judaizers. Effectively, what the Judaizers did is they said yes to Jesus, but they said the entryway into Christianity was through the gate of Judaism. So yes, we're, we believe in Jesus. We believe he's the Messiah, but you also have to follow the law. You have to eat certain foods. You have to be circumcised. So this is the teaching. It was a Jesus plus religion. And so we all know that Jesus plus anything equals nothing. If salvation comes by Jesus, but through your good works, that's not the gospel at all. And so this morning we took communion. Um, many of you have been baptized we come to church, we do good works, but if those are the things that we're relying on to save us and make us right before God, we're mistaken. Christ alone. Faith in Christ alone. In Jesus alone. In grace alone. Is what allows us to come into relationship with God the Father. The Bible says that God demonstrated His love toward us that while we were yet sinners... Don't have approval. Christ died for us. There's something else. Look at 1 Timothy 1, 3-7. I think we have that passage up in the back. This is a little bit more about the Judaizers. You see it in the New Testament. Um, often in the pastoral epistles. 1 Timothy, 2 Timothy, Titus. Um, 
First Timothy says this, Paul to Timothy, he says, And I urged you when I was going to Macedonia, remain at Ephesus so that they may, so that you may, that's a long way off back there, so that you may charge certain persons not to teach any different doctrine. So he's talk, Paul's talking about different doctrine. Nor to devote themselves to myths and endless genealogies, which promote speculation rather than the stewardship from God, that's the gospel, the truth, the trustworthy word, that is by faith, the aim of our charge and love that issues from a pure heart and a good conscience and a sincere faith. Certain persons, by swerving from these, have wandered away into vain discussion. So there's something else here about the Judaizers. Not only are they adding the law to it, they were coming up with their own speculations. They were adding even to the law and calling people to believe the things that they were speculating about. Interesting stuff. Think about the world we live in today. We live in a world where there's a designer religion and it can be whatever you want that's tailored to the individual customer. That's the world we live in. We, we live in kind of this world of shopping cart religion where I take my cart, my truth, and I go, I, I like that, I'm going to put it in the shopping cart. I like that, I'm going to put it in the shopping cart. And this is my truth. So a designer religion tailored to the individual customer is what is going on in the first century as well. There's nothing new under the sun. But the early church, here's the thing, the early church sniffed this out. They sniffed this out because there were leaders like Paul and elders in places, and part of the problem in Crete is that they hadn't put godly examples who know the truth in places to refute, to push the wolves out. But the reason they knew this, the reason they could see the counterfeit, I think there's two reasons. One is there are elders here that know the truth and can push error away, but they knew the word. The last text we were in last week said that they held fast to the trustworthy word. Acts chapter 2 says they devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching. Man, they knew the word of God. And they could spot a counterfeit. When you go to the doctor and you get an x-ray, the doctor, probably without even looking at the x-ray before your appointment, he grabs the x-ray and he looks at it. And the reason he can look at it and tell you what's wrong that bone that's broken in this spot or this spot or to see disease in your body is because he knows the real deal well. He knows what the body looks like so well that when he sees something that is not right, he can tell you. That's the way as Christians we ought to be. We ought to be people who know the Word and know Jesus and the Gospel so well when there's something that's a counterfeit, we can see it like an x-ray. That's the kind of people that we want to be. This is the kind of church I want us to be. A church that from the pulpit, in kids' ministry, in community groups, that we are learning the Word together to know the Word. Your best defense against any ism or spasm or any weird doctrine that you find is to know the Word really well. Listen, um, as a church, I want to. There's a lot of things. There's a lot of ideas, um, but personally, this is important for you as well. As you know God and you spend time with God in His Word, as you listen to worship, making sure I, I've got an I've got an Amazon Echo at my house, and so oftentimes what I'll do are in my office, and so I love listening to worship music because worship music teaches. When you leave today, you're probably going to be singing the last song that we sung when you leave, and you might remember a few of my points. I hope. Right? 
But worship, the New Testament, Ephesians, Philippians says that, that worship teaches us. I'll be honest, sometimes I, I tell Alexa, play the top worship music, and, and I'll start listening, and I'm working, and then it'll catch. I'm like, what does that mean? Like, you have to screen some of this stuff. As a church, we want to screen some of this. It's, it's important, like, because worship teaches. So that's one little application. Make sure the words of the songs that you're listening to here and the words of the songs you're listening to on your Alexa at home match up with Scripture. These are important things. Can I give you some more thoughts? Um, Man, I'm going I'm to post on Facebook today, I'm going to post some good resources, just picture of books that are they're good resources to know truth and also to know error. There's a lot of great information out there, solid information out there of all some of the maybe top five or ten false teachings that are out there today. I'm not trying to find things behind a rock, but, but it's important for you to be equipped. You guys don't know my wife real well yet. She's back there teaching today. But she has a passion for the Jehovah Witness that comes to the door. She has a passion for the Mormon, the person who is, is, as the Bible would say, been kind of caught and deceived into false teaching. So she will literally, and I'll sit there and watch, she will t- literally sit and talk with those folks and talk to them about the gospel. So she's a great resource um, for you if you have any of that going on or anybody that you want. Um, man, in the spring, I would love, these are just practical things, but in the spring, it, I would love to start. I, I'm not starting Sunday school, I don't think, but... Um, I want to start something that helps equip you um, to know the word, to know sound doctrine. And so we want to start kind of a church-wide equipping um, uh, initiative in the spring to allow you to come and study the word with one another um, that's more of a classroom type of setting. And so I'm excited about doing that. There's also a litmus test in Scripture uh, for you as you think about and, and have discernment uh, about whatever comes to your plate, whether it's somebody or something that comes across your Facebook post or social media post to, to understand what is true and to understand what is not true. First um, John chapter 4, uh, 1 through 3, this is kind of an internal biblical test for uh, doctrine. Beloved, do not believe every spirit, but test the spirits to see whether they are from God. For many false prophets have gone into the world. By this you know the Spirit of God. Every spirit that confesses that Jesus Christ has come in the flesh from God, that Jesus is the God-man. You eliminate a lot of false teaching just with that statement right now. What, is, what do these people do with Jesus? Is He just a man or is He more than a man? And, and every spirit that does not confess that Jesus is not from God, this is the spirit of the Antichrist, lowercase, which you heard was coming and now is in the world already. Aren't you glad you came today? We're talking about false teaching, right? So, so that's an internal test that Scripture gives you. Um, let me give you some others. If, if Jesus is not central to something that you're listening to or hearing, or, or they major in something minor, if they take a peripheral issue in Scripture and put it in the middle, if you find a church like that, or you hear a teaching like that, you need to be cautious. You need to say, is Jesus in the center of this teaching or is it something else? If works are elevated to the point of salvation or there is great attention given to your works and earning favor with God or with the people that are commanding you to do those things, those are signs as well. There's a lot of others. The message is off here. And Paul told Titus to set up elders so that they can divert false teaching in the church. In the church. It's not out there, it's in here. That's what he's saying. So their message is off. That's the first way. Listen, if truth leads to godliness, 
What does false teaching lead to? Keep looking at the text there. And let me, let me say it this way. False teaching often leads, not always, some of the nicest people in the world believe things that are not true. But oftentimes, false teaching uh, leads to character being corrupt. That's your second thought today. Their character is usually corrupt. Look at verse 10. This is how Paul identifies these guys because of their character. There are many who are insubordinate. That means that they are unaccountable. That means that nobody's, they don't answer to anybody. They are empty talkers. They are deceivers. You know, I've been going to baseball games my whole life. And since I was five, you see the cotton candy guy coming up the row. And you're like, man, I want some cotton candy. It looks like it's just going to fill me up. And, and I'm over 40. And every time the cotton candy comes, I'm like, I want some of that. Hey, I know you want cotton candy. Let's get it for you. I want it. But what happens when you, <laughs> what happens when you bite into cotton candy? It's like a vapor. The sugar just comes into your teeth and you get cavities. It looks big. It looks delightful. And all you get out of is cavities in a, in a really grumpy stomach. Empty Talkers has that idea. They say a lot, but they really say nothing. And oftentimes they say it beautifully. There's a lot of talk, but they say really nothing. There's no substance to it. And they talk beautifully. And that's how they lead people uh, astray. So they're empty talkers. And then it says that they are deceivers. Literally that word in the Greek means mind benders. And the reason they bend other people's minds, if you look at verse 15, because their minds have been bent as well. So have their consciences. Their consciences and their minds have been corrupt. Verse 15. And so that's what they do with other people. They're deceivers. Verse 12, they're liars, um, evil, greedy. Verse 15, they're impure, they're defiled. Verse 17, uh, or 16, they're detestable, they're dis disobedient. And verse 14, here's what they do. They lead people, because of this, they lead people away from the truth. Think about those characteristics. They deceive, they defile, they're detestable, and they lead people away from the truth. You know what Galatians 1, Paul says about false teaching itself? And what false teachers who need the truth, by the way, and they need the gospel, by the way, this is from Satan. Satan is what? He's a deceiver. He's a defiler. He leads people intentionally away from the truth. Galatians 1 says, that there's a false, there are false, false gospels out there and they are all demonic. The root, their source, is all demonic. Well, character traits, heavy burdens on people, unaccountable, adherence to their commands. But did you know, I want to ask you this, do you know where most false teaching starts? Do you know where most false teachers get their converts? Most false teachers get their converts from disconnected people in mainline Christian churches. Did you know that? From disconnected people. Did you know that most false, organized religious false teaching starts with a disconnected person from the life of a church who comes up with some weird stuff in Scripture? That's where it starts. You know what that tells me? That tells me one of the best ways for you and me to know a counterfeit and not get sucked into something like that, which we can because our hearts are deceitful, 
One is to know the word, and two is to live in community. To live in community with one another. To run something by somebody to go, hey, what do you think about this? Some weird stuff happens when I get alone and I start trying to come up with my own theology in the Bible. And there's a guy, there's a guy in Houston, God love him, and I hope the gospel reaches him. 30 years ago, he was one of the best Bible teachers in all the country. And back then, you had tapes. Remember tapes? <laughs> he would send his tapes all over. He was an old car- colonel in the army down by the Galleria. And a long time ago, a guy named Chuck Swindoll actually came out of his church before it went south. So was faithful to the Word. Man, the guy's come up with his own theology and his own moral code to fit his own life. And his life is in shambles and the life of his church is in shambles too. So this doesn't happen overnight. Listen, it's really important for us to live in community. I have a friend, a really close friend, who over the course of the last 15 years kind of started with um, a guy in college that wasn't connected to a church that started discipling him and mentoring him. And um, that was really far into the prosperity, what we call the prosperity gospel, that God wants you healthy, wealthy, and wise. And if you say something, then God will do it for you. And this really good friend got kind of sucked into that with a mentor and a friend. He got disconnected from the church. After college, he went into uh, a ministry school that wasn't accountable to anyone. He goes on the mission field with this new community of people. And he's packaging a a false gospel to people who, who are poor, who don't have money. And he's telling them, if you believe and if you give money and if you do this, then you will have faith and you will be saved and your life will look glorious. This is a close friend. That didn't happen overnight. And now in his life, his marriage is crumbling because you can't live in that kind of reality. And it breaks my heart. This stuff doesn't happen overnight, but it certainly happens when we get disconnected from the flock. We get disconnected. Think about a soldier who breaks rank from his battalion. It's open season at that point for the enemy to come in. So it's incredibly important for you and for me to live in community with one another. Well, living in community is key to protecting yourself. Hebrews 3 says it this way. You may know this passage. I love this passage as it relates to battling sin with other believers. Hebrews 3, 12 through 13. Look at the context though. Take care, brothers, lest there be any of you in an unbelieving heart leading you to fall away from the living God. Here's the solution. But exhort one another every day. That means you have other believers in your life as long as it's called today so that none of you may be hardened by the deceitfulness of sin. So we need one another to not fall away from God. This is important. Well, what about their motives? You've seen the messages off and their character is corrupt. What are their motives of the false teacher oftentimes? This is what verse 11 tells us, sadly. Verse 11 tells us that the motives of a false teacher with the false message, the motives are selfish. 
and ultimately bring harm. Do you see it in verse 11 there? They are upsetting whole families by teaching for what? Shameful game. Likely money. What they ought not to teach. So the motives are selfish. You know, 2 Timothy chapter 3, verse 6-8, through 8, Paul says to Timothy, uh, I think we have that text as well. Look at this. This is the false teacher. He says, For among them are those who creep into households and capture weak women burdened with sins and lead astray by various passions. So guess what? For the unbelieving false teacher, money, power, and sex are the motivation. Shameful gain is what this text says. Can contrast that with last week. Last week's text, what does it say an elder in a church who shepherds the flock ought to be? He ought to be a shepherd who cares for the flock, who's not self-willed, who doesn't want shameful gain. But he loves the flock and wants to care for the flock for the flock's sake to endear the flock to the chief shepherd. This is like the anti-elder, isn't it? In this text, this is what you see. You know, the end goal though um, is a little different. So this is what you see with the motives. The motives are for harm and not for good. Do you see why Paul is so direct? (laughs) Do you see why Paul is so direct? Because it's damaging people's lives. A divergent doctrine distorts the gospel, and damages lives. And that's what's happening in Crete. And that's what can happen in our lives as well. Have you ever talked to somebody who's been really burned? Really burned by the church? Oftentimes, it's because somebody wronged them in one of these kinds of ways. Think about, in your mind's eye, people who have fallen away from the truth or in whatever form of false teaching. The motives are usually for harm or gain. But what does Paul charge Timothy to do with false teachers? And we can talk about them all day, but what does Paul charge Titus to do with these false teachers? There's two things. The first one is that we need to refute them. Do you see it? They must be silenced. Verse 11 I wish the Greek helped us out. It wasn't so strong, but the idea of muzzling means literally to stick a a, a piece of cloth down their throat so they can't talk, to shut them up. That's really strong, to shut them up, to rebuke them. It's the same word we see in verse 9, and also to do it sharply. Who does it? Titus does it. The elders do it. We need men in the church that are willing to say, I care about the sheep of this church so much that I'm not going to put up with false teaching in the church. That's really important. But look at the end goal. It's not to rebuke. It's not to punish. It's not justice. When you think about disciplining your kids, is the end goal of disciplining your kids justice and punishment? I hope not. I hope it's to teach them to obey. I hope it's to teach them so that they turn and they stop doing what they're doing and they're restored. That's what discipline ought to look like in the home, in our families. And this is the same in the church. Paul's goal is not to just be a jerk. Paul's goal is that these people, particularly the sheep who've been led astray, be restored. Do you see it there? Look at verse um, 14. Excuse me. Where is it? Help me out. Somebody help me out. Verse 13. Therefore rebuke them sharply that they may be sound in the faith. He wants them to return. 
He wants them to return. The point of being sound in faith, the point of rebuke, is restoration. Did you know in the Bible there's like three areas where church discipline sometimes has to happen? It's moral, a, a gross moral failure. Maybe it's adultery, and it's known to the church. Um, disunity in the church. Somebody in the church is, is creating disunity and sharing it. And then the third one is doctrinal, where you've got some people in the church like this that are spreading false gospels in the church to lead people astray. Those are the three examples that you see in Scripture where the leadership of a church has to say, hey, uh-uh. But you know how it's done? Jesus tell, tells us how it's done. It's, it's like maybe the only step process you see in the Bible, do this, do this, do this, and then do this. Jesus tells us in Matthew chapter 18, the first thing you need to do is go to the brother or sister and do what? Bang him on the head with a sledgehammer? Nope. Tell him what they've done and ask them to return. Every point in that process is for the purpose of returning. No matter how bad or how wrong the situation is, to return. So don't hear Paul in this text saying he just wants to beat people up. He wants restoration, particularly for the sheep in this. As somebody who's been in ministry for a while and had to, unfortunately, walk through these kinds of processes, I can promise you that there's a ton of these that never see the church or, or never told to the church because there's repentance and there's restoration, which is the point. So that's what I want you to see in this text, that we seek their restoration. How often is that true of us when we respond on social media to something's not true? Do we want people to see the truth or are we just like using a sledgehammer? And the end goal here is to help people be restored. There's a family in a church that I was in and one of the spouses had gotten in a Bible study just with um, a group of ladies and, and it was like a multi-year study. It wasn't connected to a church or anything. And in year three of that study, the wife started coming home saying, listen, I have a word from God and God is telling me to do this. And that this was wrong. <laughs> and that this would destroy their family. And so we started meeting with them to help them. Listen, if we would have just rebuked her in that situation and left it and just punished her, that marriage wouldn't be together right now and she wouldn't be restored. We walked for a year in that process to help them restore their marriage, their damaged marriage in that. It was a long process. And so yes, there is correction and rebuke with the goal of restoration if possible. Man, there's a lot of ditches here for us, aren't there? There's a lot of ditches. We either tend to be, um, throw up the peace signs and say, hey man, anybody can come and, and anybody can say anything and anybody can teach anything in a church because peace is always kind of the point. And then we have often churches, and this is kind of a soapbox for me if you can't figure that out yet. Um, then we have churches that love the truth, but they really don't love people. And they beat people up with the truth. And so you see these two ditches. You see gun-shy churches, and what happens to those churches is they either close or they become something very different. Or you see churches that at every single thing are looking for false teaching and they just beat people up. I mean, I've met people who have I've met people who have come to a church I was at because um, 
the previous church literally church disciplined them because they chose to do homeschool instead of private school or public school. That's not a disciplinable offense, all right? We're not going to discipline somebody because they, ha- they, they think that um, they're four-point Calvinist or five. Like, there's a triage that's got to happen here, isn't there, in the church? There are first-level things that we say are really important, like the gospel is chiefly important in our church. And there are secondary issues that are important, but I'm going to have a conversation. I may disagree with somebody here, but I'm not going to kick them out of the church over it. We might disagree. They may not teach. And then there are other things like choir robes, what color? I mean, who cares? But people, may, pe- people do this. People do this. They're so trigger happy. Or they don't do anything. And that's not the church. This is a great passage to see the balance between sharp rebuke and correction and restoration and grace. Isn't that what Jesus came? And when He came, He said, I'm full of grace and truth. We've got to be both of those strongly. Strongly, right? So you see both. It also talks to, it helps us understand the importance of examples in our church. Elders who love people well, who walk with people, who teach truth and give wisdom. So how do you spot a counterfeit? The message is off, the character is usually off, and the motives are usually selfish, and they, and it, which creates harm for people. What do we do? We both rebuke and we restore. That's what Paul says to Titus in Crete. Put elders in place. Know what's false. Understand what a counterfeit is. Rebuke those who are off and restore them. About seven years ago, seven years ago, we planted a church in the west side of Houston, and I had preached a sermon about the importance of truth and doctrine, and a man came up to me, and he said, hey, my name's Dennis Rogers, and um, we're new to the church, but I'd love to get lunch with you. And I said, okay, we'll set up lunch, and we set it up for the next week. And usually at that point, if I don't know somebody, if I didn't know somebody in the church at that point, I'm asking somebody, okay, does anybody, he was new, does anybody know who Dennis is? I'm having lunch with him on Tuesday. And so um, a guy said, hey, I met Dennis last week, and Dennis said something really odd. He said he was pound for pound the strongest man in the world. (laughs) I said, what? And so I got on Google, don't do it right now. I got on Google and sure enough, he is a grandmaster strongman. And this guy has been on every talk show you could ever imagine, Oprah, whatever. Nat Geo has tested his body, figure out how he, can he be this strong because it's like other human. I mean, I mean, unbelievable, like Incredibles kind of stuff, kids. Um, so I, I, I kind of got a man crush on him, to be honest with you. And uh, we went to lunch. And he had also won like the world champion arm wrestling championship of the world and nose arm sports, all this stuff. So I'm just kind of Google. And so I sit across the table from him and he's, he's very understated. And I think he doesn't want anybody to know that everybody knows. Um, and I, I, we got to lunch and we ordered and I just did one of these, you know, like, hey, it's time to wrestle. And, it, and he was found out. But, you know, he spent the next 45 minutes telling me his story. He spent the next 45 t- minutes telling me how he... Uh, got caught up in a prosperity gospel. Think about a strong man in a prosperity gospel. In a gospel that says, hey, through the power of the Spirit, I can do this. 
Um, and he toured all around the world doing that, made a lot of money doing that. Um, but his life was in shambles. He had a number of, he would say if he was here, a number of divorces in that. And his life was just in shambles because you can't, he couldn't live it out that way. And, I, and he told me at some point his son, his son, um, and he became a pastor in one of these churches, uh, really far off, like really far off um, from the gospel. And, and his son sent him, he said, Dad, would you spend a month just listening to these sermons um, that I've found that really changed the way I think about God and the gospel and what it is and what it isn't? Um, and so his son had found John Piper and John MacArthur. And so he began to listen to sermons and he began to read the Bible for what it was. And God just kind of started taking the scales off of him and weeping. He said, you know what, Seth? Like, I came to know Christ. I was a pastor in a church. I was so deceived. And you know what? I still am learning. This was seven years ago. I'm still learning how to pray. I'm still learning how to read my Bible the way God would want me to read it and understand it. And like seven years later, that guy, he loves God's Word. He loves discipleship. He trains people up. And if he were here, like Paul, he would say to you and me, as Paul says to Timothy in 1 Timothy chapter 4, verse 16, watch your life and doctrine closely. Why? Because there is divergent doctrine that distorts the gospel and damages people. Let me pray. Father, thank You for today. Thank You for this Word. This is heavy, heavy Word from, from the Scriptures this morning, but calls us to be a people of the Word, calls us to be a people who live in community, not as scared people, not as scared people, but people who love You and want to serve You in truth and in grace. And Lord, I pray for those. Um, and there's people that I know that are on my mind right now but it, it grieves me. And I know there are people here that have someone in their own mind's eye that grieves them. That the evil one has pushed them into something that is not true. And so Lord, we pray for them. We pray for opportunities like Dennis's son had with, with his dad to say, hey, would you consider Christ in the real gospel that does bring life and does bring freedom that they might know Christ. In his name we pray, amen.